0: Welcome back to Cause Talk Radio by rashpixel.fm. I'm your host Megan Strand with Engage for Good. You can find full show notes and additional resources for today's episode at engageforgood.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrialcom forward slash radio. There's over 180,000 titles for you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash cause talk radio and get your free audiobook today. Rosabeth Moss Cantor holds the Ernest L. Arbuckle Professorship at Harvard Business School, specializing in strategy, innovation, and leadership for change, and is my guest in this episode of Cause Talk Radio. Professor Cantor co-founded the Harvard University-wide Advanced Leadership Initiative, guiding its planning from 2005 to its launch in 2008, and serving as founding chair and director from 2008 through 2018. Author or co-author of 20 books, her latest book is Think Outside the Building, How Advanced Leaders Can Change the World One Smart Innovation at a Time, which is the subject of our conversation today. We discuss how individuals can break through the status quo of established organizations to create bold and innovative systems change that make a meaningful impact in the world, how to influence without authority, and where most people get stuck in their efforts to make meaningful change. Well, hello, Professor Kinter, and welcome to Cause Talk Radio. My pleasure. I'm so excited to have you here today, and uh, we're here to talk about your new book, but I want to take a little bit of a step back first and talk a little bit about your role with the Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative, um, which you are co-founder of. I believe you served as chair for many years and which was started back in 2008. Would you share just a little bit about that program with our listeners and why you
1: and your colleagues were compelled to create it? Well, we first hatched the idea um, at the end of 2004 into 2005, because um, we felt that the world needed a new leadership force, um, that there were too many unsolved problems, and everybody was calling for more and better leaders. And there was a perfect group that was untapped, and that was people who were transitioning from their primary income earning years to their next years of service. And we could invent a new stage of higher education. We were thinking in very grand terms, but in fact, we ended up doing it. And when we launched, it was quite unique. Now lots of other places are doing it, but the idea is helping people make the leap into using their skills to have social impact.
0: That's phenomenal. And it's such an untapped... I mean, there's so much potential there in folks that are transitioning from you know, one phase of their life to another. So I'm sure that you saw that. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit moving forward. Um, You have a new book, which I just referenced called Think Outside the Building. But it's really a call to action to readers to kind of stop what you describe as pouring the wines, and that's a wine with wh and start innovating and driving change. So what
1: compelled you to write this book right now? Well, as you said, first of all, there's a huge demographic out there of baby boomers who would like to make a difference in the world. Um, so that was an opportunity. But the timing and why we wanted this new leadership force is because there's an accumulating set of problems in the world. Some things are getting better, like longevity overall, but some things are getting worse, like the disparity in in longevity between rich and poor, between those in affluent areas and those who are left behind. Climate change is getting worse. There's an accumulation of problems. Education has been a a source of worries for many years, and yet the problems don't seem to be fixed. And we are living at the moment in a time of incredible social divides and partisan conflict. So there's a big world to fix, and it's really important to mobilize more leaders to fix it, because without that, things will just get worse.
0: Was part of that equation in your mind as well about wanting to write kind of a, I feel like the book is a little bit of a manifesto. It's a little bit of, you know, inspiration and call to action. And it kind of just um, really does issue a very strong call to action. Did you feel like there was a lot of complaining and grumbling out in the world that you were hearing and that you were getting frustrated with? Was that part of it as well?
1: Well, I was certainly frustrated. I say, You know, too many dinner parties where they poured the fine wines, the WH kind. And um, it was not only frustration, but my own impatience that we ought to be able to do something. I've always been a fairly optimistic person. I've always been an activist. And there was also accumulating evidence that having a sense of purpose and meaning makes you happier and healthier. And so here we had all these people all these problems, why couldn't we put them together and mobilize what I now call an army for change? Because I also saw that in America, we don't fix things just from the top. And even in the great corporations that I've had the pleasure of consulting to, it doesn't all happen from the top. They all want corporate cultures where there's more innovation coming from throughout the ranks And so if we don't mobilize people to take action, it simply won't happen. So I love
0: how you equate these established organizations that you were just referring to, like government and business and healthcare institutions, with well-fortified castles. You have this just lovely visual metaphor that runs throughout the whole book. Um, But you say that they're nearly impossible to attack head on. Can you just explain a little bit more about this castle philosophy with listeners?
1: Yeah, well, it'd be, and at the risk of getting into metaphor overload here, <laughs> the castles are, they're the building that you have to think mm. outside. I mean, they're establishments, and we, we establish a way of doing things, and then, funny, it becomes a building, and it's as though the building could speak. You know, I've worked with some companies where they will say, like, Cincinnati says, as though that were a person as opposed to the site of corporate headquarters. Mm. Um, so um, we, I, we kind of begin to equate the, the problem and the solution with a particular set of structures. But we know that education is not just the classroom or the schoolhouse. We know that health is not just the hospital or even the doctor's office. There's so much more that goes into education or health. Um, the news is not the newspaper. Religion is not the church or the synagogue or the mosque. But we've made we've confused them. But what happens is each each group gets its own uh, establishment ways of doing things. It gets its own hierarchy, its own structure, and it's walled off. It's a silo of a castle standing all by itself. And they become very defensive because people want to maintain their territory. They don't want to be proven wrong. So they want to continue the way they're doing things because they've got the answers. And that gets hard to um, change. And as any change agent or entrepreneur knows, it's very hard to change things when people inside the building, so to speak, want to hold on to their territory and justify past behavior. So I say you can't a Castle head on because you'll get all the defensiveness and the fortifications coming up to push you out. What you have to do is find ways to innovate. You can go underneath. And you can often find pockets of weakness that need to be fixed. You can find people who are ready to do things differently. You befriend those people. Or you go outside. You build little villages, pitch your tents on the outskirts, set up campgrounds. You have so much fun there. You can sing. You can dance. You feel free that eventually people from the castle will come out and want to join you. And that, is innovation. That is, you do it differently, and it seems to work, and all the people who were once skeptical and defensive now want to be there with you.
0: It is a little bit of a paradox, though, isn't it, that you were saying earlier that you consult with these large corporations, and they're looking for the innovation, they're looking for, you know, the next greatest thing, and yet their institutions um, are, are the things that sometimes are standing in the way of that innovation.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that absolutely, um, their own processes and procedures. I've written a lot, done a lot on the tension between the mainstream of an organization that has a lot of momentum and which people have to do what they're told and have cut and dry jobs and meet revenue or profit targets and the innovation units which are having so much fun. They get to spend money. It's not clear that they have to meet targets and they can go wild. And that tension has existed in companies forever. And it exists in every set of large organizations that I know of. Um, and yet they want more innovation. Well, to get more innovation, sometimes you have to go outside your own structures. Um, you have to get beyond. I, I say, you know, kind of, taking this metaphor a step further, go out on the streets. But it's true. If you don't go out and see what's happening on the ground in your markets, you'll never innovate. You will just keep repeating what you're already doing. And certainly, if you want to solve large problems of society, you have to go to where the problems are. You have to combine things in a different way. You have to talk to people that don't agree with you, That's very hard for some people who are successful. You have to hear from diverse points of view. Diversity of thought is very important. And sometimes you get the idea by almost random, randomly serendipity. You're in some place where you see something different that you haven't seen before. The new CEO of Verizon, Hans Vestberg, has been sending his executive team every week. A message. He says, you have to do something new and different every week. You have to go to a place you've never been before or do something you've never done. And he's doing that to keep their minds open and to help them get fresh ideas.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash cause talk radio. My guest, Rosabeth Moss Cantor, is the author of a new book called Think Outside the Building and is one I highly recommend you check out. Professor Cantor's book is a lovely balance of inspiration and call to action and has been described as compelling, striking, and stimulating. Sharing a wide range of examples of purpose-driven individuals who each had a big vision, Think Outside the Building shares their successes and near stumbles in a way that's entertaining yet also practical. You can download Think Outside the Building for free on Audible with your 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash cause talk radio. One of the things you talked about um, and the examples you cited in your book that was kind of a think-outside-the-building type of partnership um, was Procter & Gamble establishing a nonprofit organization to provide water-purifying tablets. And in the book, you said initially that you were a little bit uneasy about our consumer products company getting recognition for that type of work in the social impact sector. I think they were being judged for some sort of award that you were part of. Um, This is the type of partnership that we talk about all the time at Engage for Good, companies doing social impact work. Um, but, but can you talk me through a little bit about your change of heart? You originally kind of thought, oh, that doesn't feel right to me. But then when you kind of applied this lens of thinking outside the building and coming up with some non-traditional partnerships, it made more sense to you.
1: So I love this project. I totally love it. So that wasn't what I was uneasy mm. about. I'll get to that part of the story. I love it because um, at first, Procter and Gamble. Um, was producing the water purification pills for people that had terrible dirty water. And so it was, um, immediate social impact, although it was very hard to sell. They had to learn a lot about how you sell into those markets and what it is people are looking for. But, um, so it was a really great project, but it wasn't one they were making a lot of money on, although it was first a revenue producing project. And, um, so, they asked themselves, what do we do? Because there were other parts of the business that needed the investment, and do they keep this alive or what? And their way of keeping it alive was to segregate it, to set it up as a not-for-profit, partner with lots of NGOs and um, all over the world, and that's how they kept it alive. So I thought all that was totally fantastic. The thing I was uneasy with was I was asked to be a judge. American Express had a competition they called the Members Project, where people were voting on the best social innovation in the world. And um, I was asked to be one of the judges along with Wynton Marsalis. And I think I agreed because I thought I would sit in meetings with Wynton Marsalis, <laughs> who I really, really think highly of. He also figures in the book in helping Mayor Mitch Landrieu of New Orleans, get those Confederate statues removed. But anyway, we actually did it virtually, not in person. Oh, sad. um, (laughs) Too bad. Yeah. But when it came to the voting on the part of our judging panel, um, after looking at all the members' um, choices, we were boiling it down to finalists. I was uneasy because most of practically all of the organizations were themselves not-for-profit, and that was the my image in mind of what, of what American Express thought that they were going to find the nonprofit that had the best social innovation. I clearly loved this P&G thing, and my uneasiness was, but honestly, it's not really a not-for-profit because it's done by a for-profit company. And then I realized I was just as stuck in conventional thinking as all the people that I write about. I was stuck in categories like what's not for profit, what's for profit. And I decided that as I was writing this book that those distinctions between sectors also don't really work. For profits can have not for profit subsidiaries. Nonprofits can have for profit. Subsidiaries, they can work with government, they can partner, and that partnerships are actually the answer. So then it became really easy to say, yes, they should get it because the, the impact part was so stunning. The fact that people could so cheaply and with such easy access have pure water because, um, Water that is not safe to drink also causes a lot of illnesses, suppresses productivity. So this really was a fantastic idea.
0: I love it. And thank you for clarifying that for me. That um, That's really interesting. Would you uh, give us maybe one other example of uh, individuals or an individual who you think is creating the type of change that you're advocating? Somebody who is creative and bold and innovative.
1: So one, then a number of them come to mind. One of them comes right out of the corporate world into using his skills to make a big impact on health for people in inner cities that. Um. Our food insecure, it's called now hungry. We used to talk about the hunger, hunger problem. It turns out it's not a hunger problem. It's a nutrition problem because people can eat potato chips. And by the way, not to disparage potato chips, but they can eat food with low nutritional content that's cheap and their health suffers. Um, the kids don't learn as well. So the former president of Trader Joe's, an iconic company um wanted to do something about the hunger problem and at his first ideas were not so good um he thought he's a good logistics person maybe he can find a more efficient way to deliver things like day old bread to food banks well that was kind of a stale idea um <laughs> forgive the pun but um he um, thought he ought to examine the problem much more, more broadly. And so he, um, just listened and he explored many dimensions of the problem. And he was very interested in food when he learned that food waste is a huge environmental problem responsible for climate change because wasted food, food waste emits methane, which is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon. So um, there he has another piece of his puzzle. He has people who are hungry. He has wasted food. And he knew enough and knew where to go that he realized how much food is thrown out that's perfectly healthy, perfectly good, but um, it's it needs to be used right away. And he said, gee, if I can find a way to use it right away or sell it right away, for people who would otherwise not have access to this nutrition and do it affordably, it would make a huge difference. So he has a new retail concept called the daily table and he uses gleaned food, that is food that is perfectly good but that would be thrown away and they prepare it into meals, they sell some of it fresh and he has now two inner city stores and is expanding to many other parts of the country And it's fabulous. The community loves it because it's a real store that they shop in. They're not treated as objects of charity. It's very good for the environment. Local farmers like it because they'd be throwing out a lot of stuff. Whole Foods likes it. In fact, wanted him to do it with them at first. But they're just partners now. And Doug does it on his own, which I think is much better. And it's such a great idea and it was all there. The pieces were, were all there. I call this kaleidoscope thinking. You have all the pieces in front of you. Um, they form one pattern. But if you twist the kaleidoscope, shake it a little, the pieces form an entirely different pattern. So he's solving several problems at once, affordable nutrition and food waste.
0: That's a great example. And this book is just chock full of fantastic examples. So thank you for sharing just one with our listeners. Um, The next thing I want to ask you, I think, will really resonate with a lot of our listeners. And in your book, you say, advanced leadership rests on persuasion, not the power of position. It involves hustle, not hierarchy. Can you just talk briefly about your approach to
1: influence without authority? Yes, that is such an important idea. Because it's truer and truer everywhere, even in corporations that have hierarchies, where there are bosses, they still don't necessarily get compliance if they can't influence people. But certainly, when you work on problems where you don't control all the parts of the problem, where you're trying to do something where there are many stakeholders each of which have a bit of the territory and they're contentious, they're warring, and they don't necessarily care about whether you succeed. You have to be really good at persuasion. You have to be really good at convincing people through the power of your ideas and the power of your story, not through the power of your position. And so leaders increasingly, and certainly in the kinds of problems I'm talking about, which engage for good, Talks about and cares about those kinds of problems. It has to be because of the power of your, your vision, your mission, the, the size and boldness of the idea, but also that you include other people in your story. They, they, you care about what's good for them and you make it we, not I. You build a big inclusive tent. You manage to listen to their needs and include them in. You don't displace them. That's a little like what I said before about not attacking the castle head on. You're not, you're not trying to use brute force. You're trying to use the power of ideas. And in some ways, there's no bigger power than the power of ideas. If you can excite people's imagination, if you can arouse their values and sense of purpose, If you can appeal to their better selves, if you can include them in the story and give them a role to play in the solution, then you can build a support system.
0: Speaking of big ideas, I think there are also a lot of people who have big ideas and certainly in the social impact space, but it feels like not many of them are able to truly break through to achieve the kind of system change that you're advocating. So in your experience, Professor Kander, where do you find that people get most hung up on their quest to make a meaningful impact?
1: So you can get hung up at many stages of the process. Um, So first of all, I'd like to talk about Cantor's law. I've named the law after myself. Cantor's law is that everything can look like a failure in the middle. And if you stop in the middle, when you have the first obstacles, roadblocks, criticism, um, setbacks, by definition, it's a failure. And if you persist and persevere, maybe pivot a little, be flexible, you can make it succeed. And I found that some people just can't handle that first obstacle and setback, particularly if they're accustomed to being successful at everything they do. When you take on these bigger, messier, do-good problems, they're harder than succeeding in a cut-and-dry career. And if you give up at the first sign of obstacles, it's gone. And so I found some people give up. Because they're too rigid. They're too stuck in one way of doing things. They haven't really left the building. They, they want to repeat whatever has worked for them in the past, rather than be open to new ideas. So they're too rigid. Some people are too naive. They never thought about the complexity of the problem. They thought it would be easy, and it turns out it's not easy. If it were easy, we would already be doing it that way. And so it doesn't become easy until you innovate in the first place. And so they just were naive, and so they neglected to build a big enough support system. They didn't look at all the different groups out there that could be helpful, or could get in their way. They were not very good at finding allies. I mean, the thing the best people do is they knock on lots and lots of doors. They talk about their project all the time, and they were constantly running into people, sometimes just by sitting on an airplane next to them. And they're finding people that can be helpful, useful, and they bring them in. And then sometimes people don't do well because they're too easily distracted. I mean, if you're an important person and you've succeeded and you're in a good company, then you have lots of op- offers, you have lots of opportunities, you can join every board, people want your time, and you can easily get distracted by all of those opportunities and lose focus. And doing good, innovating for social good, really requires focus. It's it's a startup like other startups, and you can't do it while you're distracted, It's not like philanthropy, where, in fact, you can be very distracted. You can just write a check and you're not responsible for the outcome. If you want to be responsible for the outcome, you need to stay focused. And that's where, again, having a sense of purpose matters and a good story and a lot of allies because all those things Will help you when you get to the hard times.
0: Fantastic advice. Thank you so much. Cantor's Law. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Cantor, what parting words of advice do you have for our listeners who are so eager to make change in the world outside of some of the things you've already shared with us? Is there anything that you really want to make sure that people hear you say um when it comes to innovating and and making change?
1: Oh, so first of all, I just love the idea that engaged for good has so many, listeners, so many constituents that really care about making a difference in the world. I think you're the vanguard of change. You're the people who will make a difference. And you have to support all the other people who are also trying to make a difference. So my major piece of advice is don't be alone. Don't be isolated. Find the other people with similar ways of thinking. Don't be afraid to challenge conventional wisdom Because you'll find that there may be many other people actually in the castle who agree with you, but they just needed a good demonstration and think really big, but pin it down to something manageable where you can show results early. And, but keep the big vision in mind all the time.
0: Fantastic. I feel like we should just have that soundtrack that you just spoke just looping throughout our conference. So thank you for those words of encouragement. Professor Kendra, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Where can people find you
1: or the book online? Well, thank you. The book? Um, the book is available at local retail bookstores. I love supporting independent bookstores. By the way, talk about positive social impact. They are real forces in the community. So find it at your local independent bookstore. Find it on Amazon or online. Many online booksellers. It's everywhere. And I've done, um, it's in, it's on Kindle. It's in ebooks. It's, um, I've done I actually sat in a recording studio for 17 hours oh and read every word for the oh audio book myself. Um, and so, um, but you can also follow me on Twitter at Rosabeth Cantor. And um, I have a webpage at Harvard business school, hbs.edu slash Rosabeth Cantor. Um, and I love the idea of your listeners deciding to find me, follow me, I would love to know who they are and have a dialogue.
0: Fantastic. And we will put all of those links in the show notes, which you can find at engageforgood.com. Thanks again, Professor Cantor, for joining me and to all of those of you who are listening right now and we hope to see you at a upcoming Engage for Good event or hear you on the podcast in a future episode. Thanks so much for joining us today.